This is hell. Attention deficit disorder and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder are not what you think they are, or at least are not what I thought they were. After reading today's guest writing, and a recon- I had a reconsideration of the condition, and I have a new understanding of ADD and ADHD and their causes, here to help us all have a better understanding of both so-called disorders. Writer, editor, independent scholar Laura Basu posted the Open Democracy article, Attention Deficit Disorder, the Anti-Capitalist Condition. Welcome to This Is Hell, Laura. Hi, thanks very much. I'm so glad that we're having this conversation. This is something I've actually been discussing within my family because somebody who has been diagnosed recently, you point out that your husband has attention deficit disorder. While he hasn't actually been diagnosed, he's way too ADD for that. Why do you believe your husband has ADD without being diagnosed? What are the signs of ADD, not just only in your husband, your personal experience, but but more generally? Yeah, so generally, I mean, ADD, um, the signs of ADD are things like um, problems with memory, problems with working memory, um, having difficulty focusing, so inattention, being distracted a lot, and then sort of difficulties with executive functions. So that's things like things that skills that help you get things done. So like manage time, multitask, plan and organize things, uh, that sort of thing. But yes, um, my husband kind of realized a few years ago, sort of in adulthood, that he most likely has attention deficit disorder, ADD. Um, And we tried to get him a a diagnosis, but the process for getting a diagnosis is completely inappropriate for people who have ADD. It's as if it was designed to like prevent people from ADD getting diagnosed because you've got to jump through so many hoops and do so many bits of bureaucracy and wait for so long, which is the exact opposite of what people with ADD can do. So just when I was reading your article, when I began reading it, I was thinking to myself, I'm going to find out that my uh, girlfriend, my partner of 35 years, uh, I was going to find out that she is somebody who may have ADD or ADHD. Instead, after reading your article, I realized that I think it's me that has ADD (laughs) or ADHD. Is that commonplace where people recognize that you may have this disorder, if you will, but it's really difficult for you to recognize it yourself? Well, firstly, um, uh, well, I don't know whether to say congratulations, but it's nice that you realize that you had <laughs> I think often it's like nice to when it clicks, you know, when you're like, oh, so that's what it is. And I've actually had quite a few people get in touch after reading this article saying, oh, my God, I've realized that I've most likely got ADD. Um, yeah, I think I think it can take a while for it to sink in you know I think often if you read something you know if you read a book about ADD or read an article or something then you can be like oh I see but until you kind of until it's all in one place and you kind of you get the big picture then I think it's hard to kind of realize these things about yourself isn't it is do you think there's a and I hope this is phrased correctly. You think there's a sense of shame either imposed by others on those who suffer from ADD or self-imposed by those with ADD and ADHD? I think certainly for older generations, um, you know, so my husband is 45 and he has definitely felt a sense of shame. Like he you know, he wasn't, he wasn't diagnosed in childhood, 
but he was kind of you know labeled as being a bit odd or a bit weird or you know some you know maybe someone who can't do things the way other people can or you know different you know and people sort of didn't take him seriously and so that I think from a very young age and I think that could be very traumatizing when you're a child to be told that there's something wrong with you but not know what it is and then when he like quite recently realized that oh it's actually ADD for a long time he didn't find that to be very helpful he didn't like that he sort of he wanted to reject the label at first and then he sort of accepted that he had it but he didn't really want to tell people he didn't want other people to know because he saw that they would judge him and that it would kind of confirm people's opinions that he was weird or different or not to be taken seriously but I think now he's in a different part of the process where he's accepting it and he's kind of embracing it and I think I like to think that there's a kind of new generation the zoomers who are just very open about their things you know their divergences whatever that divergence is and who own it and embrace it and you know I I I don't I don't think that's universal I think there's still a lot of shaming and stigma but I like to think that the younger generation are kind of you know showing up and owning it you write that the books of the Hungarian-Canadian medical doctor and writer Gabor Mate have guided us in our journeys, yours and your husband's. Mate has written about ADD. He has it, chronic illness and addiction and compulsive behavior. He exhibits it. Mate dissents from the mainstream consensus on what causes ADD, which is that it's mostly genetic. He says that while there is a genetic element, what determines whether or not you develop it is the extent to which you receive the right nurturing in infancy. What is meant by the right nurturing in infancy? What kind of nurturing can help somebody overcome ADD at a younger age? Yeah, so according to Gabor Mate, so Gabor Mate, his view on ADD is not the same as the kind of mainstream view. So just to get that straight, um, the, the mainstream view is that it's mostly genetic. So you're born with it, nothing you can do. Mate says, actually, no, he says there is a genetic element. And actually that genetic element is a uh, high sensitivity. So he thinks that everyone who has ADD or ADHD is highly sensitive and was born that way. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to develop ADD or ADHD. What determines whether or not you develop it is what happens to you in, in your early years of life, how you're nurtured. And according to ADD, you know, five, six of the human brain circuitry is wired after birth. So there's a huge amount that is done in the brain after you're born. And in order to develop a healthy and optimal brain wiring, you need certain conditions. So you need, you know, the material things like food and shelter, but you also need things like love and attention and attunement and, you know, a safe kind of emotional environment from your primary caregivers. And if for some reason that's disrupted or your caregivers can't give you don't give you that or can't give you that your brain wiring is going to go a bit haywire potentially and that can result in things like ADD 
So you mentioned food and shelter. When it comes to food and shelter, can poverty contribute or even cause ADD? Yes, definitely. Uh, for both things, so in terms of food and shelter, the material things, but also, you know, poverty causes a huge amount of stress. And it also causes, you know, circumstances where parents might find it very difficult to spend the amount of time that their children need from them or give them the kind of attention or attunement that children, their infants need. Um, and it, you know, might create conditions where you're just very, very stressed out and you can't pay the kinds of attention that you need to be able to do to your infant. So those are all things that can exacerbate, that, that can determine whether or not you d develop ADD. So definitely your, your material circumstances can be a factor. You also write that the reason that people think your husband is a clown is that he's the most creative thinker I've ever met. Eric is a visionary. He has big ideas, big dreams, big plans. What role do you think ADD plays in coming up with big ideas, dreams, plans, being a visionary and a creative thinker? Yeah, I think, well, it's been shown, you know, research has shown that people with ADD often are creative thinkers and think outside the box. Uh, they exhibit something called divergent thinking and overcoming knowledge constraints. So they're not kind of burdened by the same kinds of um, limits that people without ADD have in terms of, you know, we often base our ideas on things that we've heard before or learned before. And so when we approach a problem, say we come with the baggage of our past thinking, whereas people with ADD are often free from that, from that sort of baggage. So they can just let their minds fire off connections in all directions. Um, and I think a lot of creative people do have ADD. My brother um, lives in, in Los Angeles and works in Hollywood and he has loads of people in the film industry have ADD. So you also point out that, uh, you know, show me one parent who isn't stressed the eyeball struggling with work finances and trying to raise kids without enough help and, and on and no sleep, you know, and I'll show you somebody, you know, you're right, how parents are being stressed out and not being able to, you know, tune to their input and, and continue their job. So is there evidence ADD or ADHD is a product of our era that it did not exist in a less work and finance oriented period during a time when far more of our lives could be spent raising our kids is, for instance, did Keynesian economics not uh, trigger ADD uh, to, the, to the point that neoliberalism does today? It's hard to sort of prove that because I don't, I think, you know, ADD is a relatively new term uh, and people may have exhibited things in the past that we might now consider to be ADD but wasn't considered ADD then but certainly I mean rates of ADD are going up um, certainly rates of diagnoses are going up and there's a lot of underdiagnosis going on as well because like I said the process especially for adults is completely inappropriate for people with ADD um, so I I think it's hard to prove definitively and possibly there have always been people that exhibit traits that we consider now to be ADD, but 
I think it's kind of accepted that this is something, this is a problem that's growing and it's growing at a pretty fast rate. Growing at a fast rate too. Uh, and you write of ADD and ADHD. These are individual neurophysiological features, but they arise within social contexts. Our capitalist societies create stressed out families, carceral schools, and toxic workplaces. No wonder our brains are going haywire on an unprecedented scale. ADD is a capitalist condition. What or how do you think that maybe? You know, the undermining of labor organizing and workers' movements have had an impact. Uh, to what degree have they contributed to this rise in ADD and ADHD? Do you think losing more and more workers' rights may lead to more and more uh, chances or cases of ADD and ADHD? Exactly, yeah. So, th- so the purpose of the article is to kind of explore this relationship between the personal and the political, right? So it's individuals that experience ADD and have ADD. But, you know, the question is, well, yes, it's an individual condition that is personal, but, you know, under under what circumstances do these conditions arise, right? Like, what are the social conditions in which ADD is created? How do social conditions kind of exacerbate and feed ADD? And how do social conditions kind of determine that ADD is actually a disorder? You know, we consider ADD to be a disorder, pension deficit disorder, but who gets to say it's a disorder and under what conditions is it, is it a disorder? And, you know, capitalism creates those conditions. I mean, as we mentioned, Gabor Mate thinks that really the root of ADD is infants not being able to get the nurturing that they need. And that is capitalism that creates those conditions where parents or caregivers are unable to give their children the love and attention that they need. And definitely, and that's because of, you know, our experiences with work, right? With struggling with finances, struggling with work, having to work too many hours, having to work in horrible jobs, um, you know, having really stressful traumatic experiences with the state you know with law enforcement with social services whoever um having really um traumatic experiences in schools these are all conditions created by capitalism and you know exacerbated very much by the erosion of workers rights and it's these conditions that affect our brain wiring do you think that the uh, growing increasingly uh, increasing privatization of healthcare, whether we have it here in the United States where uh, we have a very privatized uh, public private partnership, they call it, but a very privatized for profit healthcare system. Do you think that has an impact on leading people to having ADD, ADHD, or being diagnosed as such? Is it because of healthcare possibly trying to focus on the person being a good worker rather than just a healthy patient? Yeah, I mean, I think often kind of with ADD, especially with children, what is focused on are not the symptoms of ADD, but the signs. So not what the person experiences or suffers themselves, but the disruption that they cause to other people, to to schools or to to workplaces. Um, And it's those signs that are medicated. It's basically... The wish to want to control the person rather than 
heal the person. You also admit that you are not the first person to say ADD is a capitalist condition. You then cite the late great Mark Fisher writing in his 2011 classic Capitalist Realism that ADHD was, quote, a pathology of late capitalism, a consequence of being wired into the entertainment control circuits of hypermediated consumer culture. So does that wired state, do you think that also may even contribute to creative thinking? Does that hypermediated consumer culture also play a role in stimulating uh, creative thinking, although it may also lead to these kinds of disorders? Yeah, so Mark Fisher was looking at this kind of hypermediated culture that we live in and the role of that hypermediated, he calls it blip, blip culture, uh, you know, with social media, the, the sort of churn of news and the whirlwind of social media and the sort of bombardment of images uh, and saying that, you know, this and, and what that does to our experience of time. Uh, which is to sort of create a very disorienting and discombobulating sort of experience of time, uh, which can affect your sense of self. Um, and he was looking at that, the, the effects of culture uh, on ADD and ADHD, and so said, you know, the, the, if, you, if you think about ADD and its symptoms of kind of being inattentive, having poor memory, you know, he says this, this is archetypal for this kind of hypermediated culture that we live in. Um, but yeah, whether or not that also can create this kind of creative thinking, I think it does open up opportunities for new types of thinking and sort of creative thinking. Um, I think you know, if you think about our hypermediated culture, it's uh, Gabor Mate argues that this is not actually the, the root cause of ADD, but it kind of feeds and exacerbates ADD. And you also mentioned how uh, Mate is clear that ADD is not a pathology, it's a developmental divergence. So, what is meant by developmental divergence? How is that different from a pathology when it comes to ADD or the way that we approach ADD? Yeah, so pathology is a disease. ADD is not a disease. Uh, what it is, is different wiring in the brain, in the part of the brain, in the prefrontal cortex. So people with ADD have different wiring and also different chemistry of the brain. So that's, that's the difference. It's, so it's not like a disease that needs to be sort of medicated, although medicine can help. Uh, it's it's, a, it's something... It's a, it's a neurodevelopmental difference. So it's a difference in the, in the wiring and the chemistry of the brain that develops as a child. So do you think that that can be uh, addressed well? Can that, can that problem be uh, taken care of with pharmaceuticals? How much success do you think you can have by giving somebody who has ADD or ADHD pharmaceuticals and taking care of that developmental divergence? I think that medication can help and i think for a lot of people it does and i think from what i've heard and read um you know ADD is actually one sort of disorder if you want to consider it a disorder that can respond well to medication and a lot of people 
a lot of people, you know, who have the condition quite severely really, really suffer from it. And trying to tell those people that they shouldn't take medication is not a good idea because, you know, that will just make them suffer more. However, Gabo Mate says that um, while medication can be helpful in many cases, it should never be the first or only port of call. You shouldn't only medicate people. You should also, you know, offer people the opportunity to heal and to and offer people different conditions. Because the, the fact is that if you have ADD, you can't live in the way that is demanded of us by capitalism, by capitalist time. You need, you need some flexibility. Society needs to be a bit flexible for people with different brains. We are swinging with writer, editor, and independent scholar Laura Basu, who posted the opendemocracy.net article, Attention Deficit Disorder, the Anti-Capitalist Condition. Find out more about Laura at laurabasu.com. You also mentioned that Mark Fisher was riffing on critical theorist Frederick Jameson's metaphor of the schizophrenic as typical of 1980s postmodern culture. Jameson described a culture in which we are constantly being bombarded by random images, a series of pure and unrelated presence in time, as he writes. He wrote that people with schizophrenia embodied the fragmentation of identity that this experience of time creates, the failure to craft a coherent sense of self that connects the past, present, and future. Do you, do you believe that is the intent? Is that purposeful? Is successful content in our hypermediated consumer culture affecting the audience so it does not have a coherent sense of self that connects the past, present, and future? Do you think that's the intent of that consumer culture? Uh, I don't necessarily think it's the intent. I think it's more of an effect. I think, you know, what these... So the there is a cohort of kind of... Um, theorists and philosophers in the 1960s and 70s and 80s that theorized kind of mental illness and specifically schizophrenia and saw schizophrenia as being sort of um, archetypal of the culture of the time, late capitalist culture, which is again this hypermediated culture, and saw thought that, you know, this kind of being bombarded with this being bombarded with images, this hypermediation messes with our sense of time. And because of that, it messes with our sense of identity and selfhood that it, it becomes difficult or impossible to craft a coherent sense of self, you know, through past, present and future. But this in turn was an effect of the way that capitalism was developing, right? Which was in this very kind of unruly way where, finance became king where finance kind of went really off the rails and um became sort of fictitious and became disconnected from the real economy um and so everything became sort of unreal and everything became sort of sped up because finance is so fast right and it, there's no borders there's no barriers for it um, so it kind of consumes time and space and erodes kind of the passing of time. Uh, and it's capitalism. It's the way that the um, economy is organized that creates our culture, right? That creates social media, that creates um, the news churn, that creates all of these things because it's about, it's all about making money, making profits. So in a way, 
the culture is an effect of the sort of unending profit drive if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And you also uh, write how uh, who you, you cite who you call a preeminent ADD expert, Russell Barkley, uh, saying that ADHD is at its heart a blindness to time. Barkley is an author of many books on ADD and tours as a speaker on the subject in his retirement from being a professor of neurology and psychiatry. But you add that uh, your husband disagrees. You explain it's not a blindness to time, your husband argues, but an oblivion to a particular social construction of time. Regimented, regimented clock time. What what is meant by blindness of time? How is that different from regimented clock time and that uh, particular uh, challenge that Barclay seems to believe that we have? Yes, I think Barclay, Russell Barclay thinks that sort of at the heart of ADD is a difference in the experience of time, right? And I definitely see this with Eric. Eric experiences time in a completely different way to how I do. I don't have ADD. Um, he for example, it, he cannot get to meetings on time. Like he, he's unaware of time passing. So for example, if I tell him that it's 2 p.m., he's like, okay, it's 2 p.m. And then he'll, I will be able to tell that time is passing and that, you know, it's now probably about five past two. It's now probably about three. Eric can't, like if I tell him it's 2 p.m., he'll continue to think that it's 2 p.m. until I tell him. No, actually, two hours have passed. It's now 4 p.m. because time passes. He doesn't have that sense of time passing. He also, uh, in, in the past, he can't really sort of plot things chronologically in the past. Like for Eric, everything that happened in the past happened the other day. So it doesn't matter if something happened a year ago or if it happened yesterday. For him, it happened the other day. And he also has like... A, a totally different kind of memory. Like a lot of things he doesn't remember at all. I mean, I have this existential dread that if we were to ever break up, he would just completely forget about me <laughs> tomorrow, you know, even though we've been together more than 10 years. So it's just a totally different experience of time. And that is, you can, you can see, like if, if you hear that, you can see how that, that perception of time or that experience of time is completely um, incompatible with the kind of regimented clock time that capitalism and capitalist work and capitalism school imposes upon us, right? Because the way that we are kind of forced to experience time is that, you know, you have to set your alarm clock, you have to get up at a certain time, you have to go somewhere, you have to be at work or at school at a certain time, you have to do set tasks for certain amounts of time, then you have to leave at a certain time, you have to go home, then you have to do a bunch of things uh, in the evening to prepare for the next day so you can get up and do exactly the same thing tomorrow. You can see how that just doesn't work. Like if you, if your brain, you know, is wired as an ADD person's brain is wired, that you just can't do that. It just doesn't work. And you write that the, the same, uh, well, you write about, um, like schizophrenia, ADD can similarly be understood not only as our heirs totemic condition, but also as its Trojan horse. How are capitalist pathologies uh, like ADD, like ADHD, how are they a Trojan horse in your opinion? Yeah, so this is again riffing off some of these theorists' um, analyses of schizophrenia. So uh, we were talking earlier about Frederick Jameson who talked about schizophrenia and sort of theorized schizophrenia as something social um, in the 80s. 
but there were also others. So there was a French philosopher called Gilles Deleuze and a, and a psychoanalyst called Felix Guattari, who wrote a book about sort of capitalism and schizophrenia. And they argued, like Jameson, they argued that schizophrenia was not, again, not just a personal affliction or a personal mental illness, but it was a political condition uh, created by capitalism. But they argued that um, uh, schizophrenia was not just created by capitalism, but it was also potentially subversive of capitalism. It could also be the undoing of capitalism because, you know, late capitalism, neoliberal capitalism is very sort of unruly and chaotic uh, and kind of wild, uh, which creates cultures that are also unruly and disorderly and wild and chaotic and also and also identities and sort of um, subjectivities that are that are chaotic, uh, like schizophrenia. But at the end of the day, capitalism also needs order and stability and rules, and it needs the state, and it needs the state's militaries, uh, it needs laws, it needs bureaucracies, and it also needs capitalism needs good, stable, reliable citizens to do its bidding for it, right? To go out and work and do do what they're told and, and obey, and the sort of chaos and disorder of schizophrenia threatens to undermine and disrupt the whole capitalist system uh, because it can't be kept under control. So this was sort of their theory of schizophrenia and the politics of schizophrenia. And I'm sort of trying to make the same argument about ADD and say, yeah, ADD is created um, and exacerbated by our neoliberal capitalist conditions. But you can also see ADD as subvert, potentially subversive of capitalism because the ADD brain cannot and refute, completely refuses to work in the way that capitalism requires our brains to work in. And as you point out, uh, late capitalism, aka neoliberal capitalism, is disorderly, chaotic, unruly. As you were just saying, it's the economic wild west where money is king, finance is fictitious, and all barriers to its flows are bulldozed. This creates cultures and subjective subjectivities that are also disorderly, chaotic, and unruly. So if neoliberalism is self-destructive and we live under neoliberalism, will neoliberalism destroy us? Does it come down to who will destroy who first, neoliberalism or humanity? Uh, I think, yeah, I think that's basically, yes, what it comes down to. <laughs> and uh, let's hope it's this, the second one that, you know, we come to our senses and perhaps, you know, by learning from the ADD brain and refusing to participate in this kind of tyranny of capitalist time and the tyranny of capitalist bureaucracy, perhaps uh, if we collectively do that, that will help us to destroy and overcome this very destructive system. Are these kinds of structural illnesses, if you will, um, because you write about, to be honest, I'm not sure if using a serious mental illness as a metaphor for our modern malaise is okay for theorists like 20th century French philosopher Gilles Deleuze, though it was important to see mental illnesses as uh, political rather than natural and private categories. These illnesses are experienced by individuals, but they are produced in and by societies, the personal is political, as you said at the beginning of our conversation. So are these structural illnesses, if you will, related to neoliberalism's rejection of the common good and the notion of society? What role does that 
uh, focus on individual liberty have on ADD and ADHD? Yeah, I think, you know, it comes down to the atomization of people, loneliness and the lack of mutual nurturing and spaces of acceptance and love where, you know, we, you know, human beings are social animals. We need to be together. We need to nurture and care for each other. That's absolutely fundamental for our existence and for our health. And that has been denied to us and that has been broken down. And of course, our brains are gonna go haywire and we're going to suffer a lot uh, in conditions where we can't be together and we can't collectively nurture each other and that where society is organized in such a way whereas instead of um offering those spaces and opportunities for people it's um preventing us from from giving that that to each other you also point out that we are always on the clock and i thought that this is one of the more interesting part uh points that you make in your article about this relationship with time we're always on the clock even when we're free in the evenings, we're preparing for work tomorrow. On the weekends, as this just happened to me this weekend, we're trying to forget about work while making sure our sleep routine doesn't get so messed up that we can't get up on time on Monday. On holidays, if we're lucky, we get to unwind for a few moments before having to start back again. Other than the need to survive, which I understand is really important under capitalism, but under uh, other than the need to survive under late capitalism and its neoliberal stage, why do you think we tolerate that lack of our own time? Is it simply a survival mechanism and nothing more? Yeah, so this is, um, you know, I try to explain in the article that this regimented clock time that, you know, Eric is so kind of um, scornful of and that, and that the people with ADD find very difficult to, to um, abide by, this was instituted by capitalism because capitalism brought in an economy based on wage labor. An economy based on wage labor means that time becomes commodified because time becomes money, right? Because, or more, more precisely, workers' labor time becomes capitalist profit. We have to give our time to work to make profits for those who own the, and control the resources that we need to survive. So, you know, that is why time becomes so regimented. And we see, you know, this kind of tyranny in time of time, of capitalist time. You know, the most famous examples are the kind of Amazon warehouses, right, where workers, uh, every single movement is monitored by algorithms. And if you're not productive enough, you get fired. Or you hear about like poultry farms where workers are forced into wearing diapers because they don't have time for bathroom breaks right so that's like like the sharp end of the tyranny of capitalist time but actually we all are even the sort of luckier ones who have perhaps easier jobs we all face the tyranny of time like you say you know we're always on the clock even when we're free you know because even when we're not actually at work we're thinking about work we're preparing for work we're trying to make sure that our sleep doesn't get too messed up so that we can get up for work holidays can often be stressful because by the time you've by the time you've managed to unwind if you've managed to unwind 
you have to you have to get back to work again you know we call in our household you know we call it the Sunday blues every Sunday we're like oh I don't want to go to work tomorrow um and what was your question oh is it do we purely do this because we need to survive I think so yeah I mean I think we've internalized I think there's a really powerful ideology which is the work ethic which is that we should be working and not just working we should be suffering uh, and that's the just to be able to survive just so we can get the basic essentials that we need to be able to survive we have to work really hard and suffer for it and the idea that we shouldn't have to do that the idea that we should be able to just live and have a nice life and not have to give over all of our time to often quite pointless activities uh, just to get money. I think people find that quite difficult to get their heads around, even though everybody, almost everybody hates work. Um, but I think if we did, if we were offered the opportunity to, you know, have freedom over our time, I'm sure we would be able to find very fun and um, exciting and interesting things to do with it and, and productive things to do with it. And you write that, let's face it, along with straight up bureaucracy, which takes up an inordinate amount of our time and for which we are paid nothing, much of the paid work we do can also pretty much be classified as bureaucracy. It has no intrinsic meaning. It adds no value to society. And we do it purely to get money to stay alive. Again, those with ADD are unable to motivate themselves to do things that have no intrinsic meaning. We can ask ourselves why any of us can. When you think about it, who is it really that has the disorder? To you, is the problem that those with ADD cannot do anything that has no intrinsic meaning? Or are those who can do the work that has no intrinsic meaning, are they the ones who have the disorder, if you will? Yeah, so this is another sort of key aspect of ADD. So one, one of them is this so-called blindness to time, this kind of not recognizing that time is passing and not being able to abide by the regimentation of time. And another um, aspect of ADD is the inability to be able to motivate yourself to do tasks for which you don't have any intrinsic motivation, right? So that's bureaucracy, right? Like that's, and a huge amount of what we do is bureaucracy. Like that takes up a huge amount, a ridiculous amount of our time. Um, and people with ADD, I think it's due to, in part due to um, reduced levels of dopamine in the brain. People with ADD find it really, really hard, virtually impossible to, to make themselves do tasks that don't have any meaning or that they're not internally motivated for. So the example that Russell Barkley gives actually is uh, that if you want to get a child with ADD to do their math homework, you have to structure it like a video game, which delivers a hit of dopamine every time you score a point. So you have to sort of create a motivation externally through kind of giving hits of dopamine, right? So a huge amount of what we do, firstly, straight up bureaucracy takes up a huge amount of our time. Like, I don't know what it's like for you in the States, but where I live in the Netherlands, 
it's like a second job. It's like I do my paid work and then I need another week to do my bureaucracy work. So it's a huge amount of time. But when you think about it, also a lot of our paid work can also be considered bureaucracy because it's pointless. It has no meaning in the in itself. It adds no value. And we don't want to do it. Like we only do it because we need money. So you can really consider that bureaucracy as well. So if you think about it, you know, we're spending perhaps the majority of our waking hours doing, bu- doing bureaucracy and people with ADD just can't do that. They're just, their brains are just not made that way. But yeah, like I say in the article, you can ask yourself, well, is that like, who's got the problem there? Is it the person who who can't and won't do these pointless and stupid activities? Or is it all the rest of us who are spending so much of our time actually doing them, even though we don't want to be? Like where, who really has the disorder? Yeah, and the, the issue that I've been having of late is uh, with my various health conditions. I, uh, have been, I've been having trouble paying my medical bills, not because I have difficulty paying the bills. It's the, uh, pr- the problem is that just going through the paperwork and going through having to make a phone call to uh, different insurance agencies to make certain that my bill is being paid. Or, uh, for instance, I got a $500 bill for a annual physical, and I asked them, why am I getting a $500 bill for just a physical? And they said, well, you've had another physical in the last year. And I said, I haven't had a physical for three years. And they told me that they don't have any documentation of the last time I had a physical. So how would they know that I owe five hundred dollars. It's <laughs> it's just mind-boggling, and that's the kind of thing. It's it just like I it's like hitting myself up against a wall. You point out that uh, Eric is high functioning. When we met, he was a risk analyst at a major bank, but he can only take the tyranny of time for so long. Eventually, usually after a year or two, he will quit and need to reclaim his time and his sleep. Millions of ADDers. Uh, along with billions of non-ADDers, never escape the grind. But who knows, if we collectively adopted the ADD noncompliance with capitalist time, maybe we could. So to what extent can Eric or anyone say no to time? Can we say no to time more now than in the past because of the remote, remote nature of work since the beginning of the pandemic and mutual aid societies that have been assisting us during this time? So it's a two-part question, I guess. To what extent can Eric say no to time? And to what extent can we say no to time? And has it even expanded during the pandemic? Well, firstly, your experience with um, getting bills paid and the absolute hellish nightmare of having to make calls and follow up and query things and find out, you know, and then try to reason with these people and argue. And that is, you know, so frustrating in that that's the kind of thing that people with ADD find almost impossible and that can get themselves into a huge amount of trouble that way. I write in the article that in the Netherlands, where I live, um, the state and private sector bureaucracies are often intertwined. For example, if you owe some kind of tax to a government department, they will, if you're behind, they will hire private debt collectors to come after you. And once they've done that, once you're in the hand of these hands of these private debt collectors who are just doing this to get to get money to extract money off you, that's that's the whole purpose for existing. Once you're in their hands, it's almost impossible to extricate yourself from them, and you're just constantly having more and more fees added on, more and more fines added on. 
you have to spend hours and hours, you know, try, making phone calls, waiting, writing, trying to reason, argue. These are things that people with ADD find it almost impossible to do. So it can be very, very traumatizing. It has been very traumatizing for Eric to get into the grip of, of, of these people and, and face that kind of harassment and that kind of financial difficulty as well. Once you, once you're, you know, experiencing these fines and these fees that are constantly compounding. Um, and yeah, so I totally understand your problem there with uh, getting your medical bills paid. And I'm very sorry to hear that. But in terms of escaping time, I think it's very difficult for individuals to escape capitalist time because what that basically means is escaping work, right? Or having a lot more freedom and flexibility when it comes to work. And I don't think, I don't think this is something that individuals can do by themselves. I think they're privileged individuals and to an extent we are privileged because Eric, when he does work, he, he can earn a, a decent wage, which means he can save up and then he can quit and then he can take some time off and, you know, recover, rest, recover, get a bit of sleep. Uh, although it's quite difficult to live in that kind of cycle, but it's possible for some, but only for people with that privilege, you know, uh, most people can't avoid work. And, and the kind of regimentation and discipline that is required of us through work. I think if, I think, but I think that is what we should be trying to do. And I think, but I think that needs to be a collective endeavor. One last question for you, Laura. We have been speaking with writer, editor, and independent scholar, Laura Basu, who posted the Open Democracy article, Attention Deficit Disorder, the Anti-Capitalist Condition. And just, I don't want to skip over it really quickly, but you're right. It is a collective pursuit. It's something that we need to work on together that you can't do with just individualism and individual liberty and individual freedom. It has to be something that we do together. And that's an important thing to remember. One last question for you, Laura, and it's what we call the question from hell the question we hate to ask you may hate to answer or our audience is going to hate your response you write of those with ADD what they need is what everyone needs you then add I've always said that love is not just a feeling but a verb an action we are seeing hate as an action as a verb worldwide why are we not seeing love become a verb (laughs) I think if you look for it, you can find it. Um, I think it's very difficult for us to create spaces of active love. Love is a doing word, it's a verb, uh, because of the conditions that society has imposed on us, because of the types of regimentation and trauma that have been inflicted upon us all. But I think... You know, if you look closely, you can find spaces, groups of people who are extending love um, to themselves and to others. And I think perhaps part of the solution is finding those people and those places and joining them. So do you think the focus on individualism and our economics of neoliberalism, do you think that they 
not only breed hate, but undermine love? Yes, of course. I think they make it very difficult for, um, I think, I think these conditions, this way of organizing the economy is traumatizing uh, for all of us, even the very rich, possibly especially the very rich, and certainly for the rest of us. Uh, and I think when you're traumatized, it's very difficult to love yourself and to love others. So part of part of collective action needs to be mutual healing. Laura, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. This was not only enlightening in this conversation, but for the reading, it was very revelatory to me. And I really appreciate uh, you being on the show today. This was really fantastic uh, work. And now that I have your email address, I'll be bugging you in the future to be back on the show. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks very much for having me on. All right. Take care. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.